the news from RTHK. Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Week on 3 with me, Janice Wong. It's been an exciting week at Radio 3 with the official launch of our annual Operation Santa Claus charity drive, jointly organised with the South China Morning Post. I'll bring you highlights from the project launch in a moment. Also, on this week's programme, we'll have the best of our coverage of the US elections, how a local cartoonist gets inspired, and why Canadian rapper, singer and songwriter Ali Gatti tops the celebrity dream guy list of our very own Alison Howe. But first, Operation Santa Claus. Director of Broadcasting Leung Ka Wing starts by giving a few words of thanks to our donors, followed by Gary Liu, the CEO of the SEMP. For 32 years now, RTHK and SCMP have jointly organized the annual charity campaign, Operation Santa Claus, aiming to support the Hong Kong community through our combined fundraising power. I'm grateful for our generous donors, who have contributed over 316 million Hong Kong dollars, funding more than 300 projects in the past decade. This year, we're proud to unveil a new brand and a new look for Operation Santa Claus, one that reflects the strong community spirit of Hong Kong and the OSC mission to serve those in need. With our partners, donors, and beneficiaries, we will continue to champion the spirit of giving and amplify your efforts to bring cheer to the city this Christmas. That was the Director of Broadcasting, Leung Ka Wing, and Gary Liu, the CEO of the SEMP, kicking off our Operation Santa Claus charity drive on Tuesday. And you know the saying, it's better to give than to receive. If you want to know more or wish to make a donation to Operation Santa Claus, you can visit our website at osc.scmp.com. And of course, we can't talk about the past week without mentioning the number one story that's been on everyone's mind, the U.S. election. It's been a long, drawn-out process, but we can look back at the drama in the first few hours after results started streaming in during our election special on Wednesday. Our hosts, Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gitting, spoke to a number of guests during the five-hour special. Let's have a listen. Joined now uh, by Chris Exline, who's a uh, Republican uh, uh, and uh, a local uh, resident. Uh, Chris, good morning to you. Thanks very much indeed for for joining us. Pleasure and honour to be here. Thank you. How are you feeling about this? Are you excited? Are you I'm, I'm optimistic? You're energised. I'm, I'm highly energised. I mean, I just see the, uh, the reason this is garnering so much attention globally is because this is what the American democratic experience is all about. I mean, you look at a place like Houston, Texas, where 800,000 people did early voting. You look at um, lines all across the United States with people engaged and, and passionate about voting for the candidate, regardless of, of what their reasons are. They're going out there and, and exercising that freedom of expression. What an amazing expression of what America should represent, regardless of who's in the office today or who, who might be in the office next week. Um, and so I think that's that's why I'm, I'm even, you know, it, it almost <laughs> it almost brings a tear in my eye when I saw the, the news this morning and you see all of these people out there uh, passionate about wanting to have their voice count.
when I was evaluating who to vote for, you know, I think Steve Mnuchin has done a very good job as a secretary of treasury. I, I, I think uh, William Barr is a fantastic uh, attorney general. And Mike Pompeo has been a much better advocate of U.S. interests as secretary of state than, say, Rex Tillerson was. So, okay. Uh, and are you going to tell us who you did your deliberations landed on? <laughs> well, I, I uh, again, I, you know, like with Kim and the others, I'm not going to be invited to any cocktail parties at the Republicans uh, anytime overseas anytime soon. So I did vote for Joe Biden. With us in the studio here is uh, Dan Van Hoy, who's uh, a, a member of Republican overseas and a Trump supporter. Well, thank you, Danny, and uh, good morning to you, Hugh, and also to Chris. This is a real honor to be here on this day. I think we're going to look back and see that as this is a watershed day in the history of the United States of America and to maybe a lesser degree the world. Um, What happens today and in the next few days is going to be pivotal to the future of the United States of America. And of course, U.S. has such a huge influence uh, all over the world and uh, certainly in Hong Kong as well. I think uh, you you and I talked about this last time, Chris, outside (laughs) the, the studio about Kamala Harris. We're Biden, 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 Trump, Trump, Trump. It's this is more than just two men. Uh, there are vice presidents involved. There are, you know, it's a huge, uh, a huge um, focus on where will the country go. It's more than just two men. It's about the philosophy that uh, undergirds the direction of the country. And they're very, very different, as I've said here on this, in this very studio, in this very chair before, uh, radically different, the two directions the two sides want to go. And having Kamala Harris as President Kamala Harris scares the, I don't know what, out of me, but it really scares me. Well, hang on, there's, uh, there's four, four, a minimum of four years to go in another election. Uh, but there are very few people think Biden can survive those four years. Something will likely happen. That's the, where the money is, that Biden cannot survive four years and Kamala's going to get in there somehow if uh, indeed Biden wins. Do you, uh, if you support uh, Trump, does, does he sometimes make you wince some of the things he says, some of the things he does? He even makes his family wince, Danny. Did you, did you hear uh, Ivanka's uh, introduction to him at the Republican uh, uh, acceptance speech, uh, nomination speech? Yeah, she's saying, yeah, sometimes we don't, we don't even like our dad, my dad's tweets. But again, there's, in my opinion, there's far too much focus on one man. Well, he is the president. He <laughs> is, but he's gathered around him and laid forth a philosophy and a vision. He's gathered great people around him uh, in his administration. And so it's more than we, people are too focused on Trump and emoting about Trump, getting uh, you know, excited about Trump in a negative way. Uh, and he's had an incredible headwind. Uh, 92 percent, 92 to 95 percent of the stories about Trump on CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times have been negative. Okay, so and the and so, uh, Fox News, it would be the opposite way around, wouldn't it? No, it's not. There are a lot more. They do try to be fair and balanced. Okay, <laughs> I watch CNN, I watch MSNBC, and then I read the Wapo and the others. But Trump, I mean, Fox News does attempt to be fair and balanced. They make some attempt. They're not perfect at it. No network could be. Uh, so there's. The, I want the focus has been on the two men, but to me, it's much more than that. It's about where we go to the f- in the future as a country and the, the philosophy that undergirds the direction we take. Uh, we're joined now by uh, Kurt Tong, a familiar name to many uh, in Hong Kong, uh, formerly the uh, Consul General, the U.S. Consul General to uh, Hong Kong and Macau, now a partner at the Asia Group uh, advisory firm. Do you think that uh, President Trump's policy on China has won him votes or lost him votes or not made much difference? For the most part, not much difference. I think um, his recent uh, approach towards China has been 
you know, as you all know, over the last eight months or so, especially combative. Um, much of that had to do with this coronavirus messaging and, uh, and a certain amount of blame shifting with respect to the, how, much, how bad the coronavirus infections have been in the United States. Um, and, and, uh, but beyond that, um, you know, trade policy, it has some relevance, but it's really more the attitude uh, conveyed that I think is what, is what the electorate picks up on. Um, the sense of, of aggressive um, uh, nationalism, if you will, that the president conveys is attractive. And I think China policy becomes a part of that. Um, certainly the electorate's not following the ins and outs of the, of the, the specific deals or, or, um, or the terms that have been reached. If Trump does prevail, which is at least a possibility, what's your feeling on how a second-term Trump presidency would differ from a first-term Trump presidency? so difficult to predict generally but of course what, what we're, we're concerned about here is his policies on china and hong kong um any inkling on how they whether they, you continue to see the same sort of approach or whether it might change well i think the fundamental choice if, pre if president trump is re-elected will be his choice and we've seen two different donald trumps as president with respect to china there was the uh, negotiator donald trump which was the primary theme in the first two and a half to three years of his presidency, and and the confronter, Donald Trump, which was the main theme in the last year, year and a half. And whether that shift to confrontation as, as opposed to negotiation was based on his estimation of what he needed to do for re-election, um, based on frustration with China, um, driven by the coronavirus, um, or driven by the people that, that have surrounded him in the administration. Those are all explanations. Um, and whether, but whether that continues to be the case or he switches back to the negotiator mode, um, I think is not certain. Right now, it, it looks like he would continue the confrontational approach. But, but he does have a strong inclination to try to reach deals. Uh, and if you don't have dialogue and, and conversation and fairly predictable use of leverage, it's difficult to reach deals.
And that was the former U.S. Consul General in Hong Kong, Kurt Tong, speaking in our U.S. election special on Wednesday. Turning now from politics to art. Local cartoonist Caitlin Chan, who's had her work published in the New Yorker magazine before, told Noreen Mir about her inspirations on Wednesday's 123 show and also about her involvement with the Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Well, let's talk about that. Where do you get your inspiration from? Actually, a lot of it is just people watching. I I think that Hong Kong is a really almost like sort of theatrical place. You can just walk down the street and there's like a lot of narratives unfolding around you. And it's actually kind of fun when you're alone, sort of see like, what, what are people doing and how are they touching and interacting and like it's actually so inspiring in a way that I, of course I love culture too and what people make out of real daily life but I think there's something really sort of special about just looking at what is our ordinary everyday because we often only think of documenting special days in our life but then when we try to remember different periods of our life we want to remember what the sort of the normal Tuesday or like the normal Wednesday felt like to get the real texture of you know how we were being and it's the little everyday things which make it special you don't have to focus on the special things um, how long do you spend people watching then? <laughs> I think, I mean, most of us who live in cities, we do spend a lot of our life waiting. Like, let's say... Rather than scrolling on the phone, you're watching people. <laughs> you're like running for the bus. And then, you know, that classic moment, you're just seeing your bus trail away with the exhaust fumes behind it. And you're like, well, that's 25 minutes I've got to myself now. So I could look on Facebook and see what people are posting. But then I sort of feel... I think we've gotten to this point, like those of us who grew up on Facebook, it was a bit like playful and rowdy at first, like you post weird things or like funny things. And now it's nothing very, like, shocks us anymore. Yeah, it's all like very pseudo professional. <laughs> so I find a little bit more rawness in like actual people on the streets. Do you have a notebook with you where you jot down things that you see just for future ideas? Or do you just remember it, you know, in the noodle or something? I have to put it in my like phone notes because I find that like I've got lots of little scraps of paper everywhere. And sometimes also when you write something and you're really excited, the next day you look at it and you're like, I can't read that. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense at all. So sometimes, yeah, I'll find these notes like, um, I don't know, I'd written this note down one time. I haven't really figured out this idea yet, but I was thinking about how there used to be these really big theater posters when you walk past like live performances or in movies, there's like now showing or something. And I was thinking it would be fun if like there was a person who maybe had a really significant person from their past they haven't seen in a long time. And then one day they're all walking on the street and they see like a huge billboard or a huge showing poster of them like all these years later. And I don't know, that's an image that I'm very affixed to, but I also can't explain why. Let's talk a little bit about Xingbei. Um, sure. You launched that, I think, last year in the, 2019. In the book fair. Yes, Daigun book fair. Yeah. What does Xingbie mean and what's your interpretation of it? Um, Xingbie is a term that I kind of came across when I was looking at Taiwanese queer history. Um, many of us have maybe heard the term Tongzhi, which is translating to comrade, and it basically means uh, it's a term that queer people have appropriated to mean um, other people in the queer community. Um, but I found Xingbie interesting because it literally translates to gender and difference, and it's usually written with a slash in between it. And the way that it's used to gesture or describe things is just really anything that's sort of a divergent or non-normative idea of gender or sexuality. And when thinking about about like my friends, my queer community, that's a phrase that I feel is a little bit more specific and descriptive because it's a thing that sort of gestures at the fact that we're really trying to find new ways to imagine ourselves or new ways to imagine relationships than what we've been told. So bie, meaning different, I feel is a kind of expansive and open word for that. So tell us about Xingbie then. What is it about? Uh, 
I guess I was thinking a lot about um, shout out to our fellow guest friend Sophia Sheck. You know, her and I have talked about how a lot of queer stories that get told are um, a little bit tragic, or they, they hew to the storyline of um, the internally repressed, um, feeling very lost person, which is of course Why how all that? of us feel sometimes. I think it because it plays into the narrative that uh, anyone who's marginalized life is just about their struggle when it's like. We have like lots of dimensions of being and, and, and ways of desiring and wanting things. And I was thinking, what if I just wanted to tell a queer story that's about the small, the small moments in our lives, whether it's like a, a little comment at a family reunion or it's something that two people who are living together say to each other before they go to sleep. It's like these are the sort of small traces of our lives that make us feel like we've existed or that we exist. And they're not necessarily grand or big, but I just thought it'd be nice to kind of have a ambiguous meet cute story. So that's kind of why I like the two protagonists of that zine is that they're not like it's never said that they're like two girlfriends or anything it's sort of like their gender and their relationship is sort of undefined because it might sort of be in flux but what we know is that there's something very tender there where no matter how much like society or their sort of colleagues make fun of them they have each other at the end of the day yeah i just i just learned what the what the phrase meet cute meant and i had to google it (laughs) For through you because I knew like your zine was sort of had, had the when you meet make, a cutie yeah exactly that's simple so I'm seeing like there's a bit of a, a, a an interest in zines tell us a little bit more about the appeal about zines I find that uh, zines are sort of a way to sort of short circuit the process of traditional publishing so a lot of us uh, have ideas and we have writing and we have drawing but many of us might think that our artwork is not necessarily up to what we believe is this imagined standard of what uh, gatekeepers would say is art that's worthy of printing onto like precious paper. Um, but the thing about zines is that, you know, they began in a lot of punk and DIY and anti-racism circles. Like they're all about forming a kind of solidarity community and immediacy and urgency. So what I like about zines is that I didn't even like think I could make my own. It was actually another previous guest, Beatrix Pang, who sort of encouraged me. Uh, she's a publisher and she runs Small Tune Press. And when I met her, she was asking me, like, have you thought about making a zine? And I was I was really shocked at first. I was like, oh, not me. Like, I don't have anything to say. I don't have any ideas. And she said, well, like, my printer is available. So she actually opened up that resource to me. And when I printed the zine, something about just seeing the sheets of paper come out of the tray makes you feel like, that's my idea. And now it's on a paper. And there's something that's kind of special about that. Because I usually associate printing with, like, documents or, like, forms and stuff, right? So it feels exciting. It's like, reclaim the form, you know, like, reclaim the paper. So it's something that's about aiding your ideas or, like, something you want to put into the world. Caitlin, um, with your process of drawing, do you draw uh, with pencils or do you draw digitally? Sorry if I'm asking a really sort of dumb question. Not, I not dumb at all. Sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if you are a, a cartoonist, do you start with, you know, like what we do when we write instead of typing, do you do it digitally? Yes, I uh, usually write my scripts out on my phone because I make so many revisions if I was going to write it, the paper would like tear through. But I find that when I'm drawing, I really like to start with pencil. I think because the way that the pencil reacts when it's in your hand, there's an immediacy to the pressure versus when I use tablets, I find I can't always control how it looks. And I learned from this great comic artist, Bianca Shanice, who said, if you do all your pencil sketches really light and loose, you won't worry about them so much. And that's how you arrive at the composition you'd like because you're not so fixated on the final outcome. Because what's a pencil stroke? 
stroke, just a little stroke here and a stroke there, and that's how you sort of develop the form. Because I find sometimes when we, any of us, you know, face with a blank paper or yes. the blank recording document, you're just like, eek, it's like kind of scary. Daunting. Exactly. Yeah, so pencil's a way to make it feel a little bit more relaxed. And maybe I'll ink it digitally, but sometimes I ink it with real ink. Yeah. Oh, wow, with real ink as well. And then afterwards you scan it in. Yeah, back to the digital. <laughs> so it's, it feels kind of ironic, but you know, the originals are all in my precious bedroom drawer. So maybe one day someone want to see them. Well, for, for our listeners, um, we will be able to see Caitlin uh, in the in Tycoon JC Cube on the 15th of November. She'll be doing a talk called Zines, Memes and Books in the Digital Age. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it might be about without giving it too much away? For sure. Um, there's this wonderful independent publisher and story curator called Tiffany Huang of Spill Stories. And she's actually the person who's also on this panel and also invited me to participate because she uses her Instagram platform with Spill Stories to sort of share uh, people's storytelling and narratives in like an organic digital way, moving with the time, social media. And she noticed that I've been putting out print zines while also publishing comics online. So she was sort of saying like, there's a bit of a duality there. And I think that it's really nice that the Hong Kong Literary Festival is actually open to other kinds of literature outside the traditional canon of bookstores and printed books. There's also other ways like uh, her recent anthology for Spill Stories, Black in Asia, was disseminated a lot on ebook and Kindle, and that's also how I got my copy. So I feel like the panel's a little bit how, a little bit about how is literature sort of transforming and changing and adapting to the conditions of social media, and how do people's ideas and narratives still get preserved in that context. And that was local cartoonist Caitlin Chan on Wednesday's 123 show. And finally, from one creative soul to another, Canadian rapper, singer, and songwriter Ali Gatti has been giving his advice on how to deal with the new normal during the COVID 19 pandemic. He also managed to wow Alison Howe with his love of the movie The Notebook on Thursday's Common Room program. For you, I feel like you have more inspiration with personal experience. Is that mm-hmm. true? Yeah, definitely. I think like the, the most vulnerable and truest songs definitely have to come from something that whoever wrote the song at least um, has to really feel it. So yeah. All right. So how has this whole COVID situation been hitting you in terms of your creativity train? Mm-hmm. The cool thing about me is a lot of my songs, like I write, some I write in the moment, like I'm feeling this, so I'm going to write it now, but a lot of it is more reflective. It's more like, Okay, three years ago, I, I felt like this. I'm like, now I'll, I'm ready to like fully understand. Uh-huh. And so um, a lot of my songs were like that. Like Moonlight, I think I wrote like five years or four years later. It's like I wasn't even in love with that girl. I wasn't even heartbroken when I wrote it. But it still came from a heartbreak that I felt, you know? And so um, COVID hasn't really affected me. So I'm, I'm just still writing and, and I try to get creative and get ideas from like movies. And then I'm like, okay, like, I love The Notebook, but how can I relate that story to me and then flip it, you know? You love The Notebook? I love The Notebook. Such a good movie. Oh my God, I'm going to put you on a dream guy list right now. <laughs> oh, that's cute. I, I've I, never I heard a guy movie. who would like openly admit that they love The Notebook. This is amazing. Yeah, I love that movie. It's, it's probably one of my, it's in probably my top five, I'd say. It's, it's definitely top one, like love movies, but overall movies, it's up there. I think it's a great movie. It's a great story. <laughs> Wow, all the ladies are like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's in your, your movie taste? I mean, apart from the notebook, you mentioned there might be some well, other I, films. I'm, I'm obviously like, I'm, I'm a big sucker for like the romantic movies, but like my favorite movies is like 
the Inception, Interstellar type of movies. Those like, just like something that messes with your brain and you're like, what's what's even going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought you things that I didn't even have the money for. If I could make you feel so rich, I don't mind feeling poor. There's something about you so addictive, had me needing more. Yeah, I just wanna hold you, baby. You the one I want. I know I've said this all before, but I'll say it again. You the only one I want, and girl, I can't pretend. I remember cloudy days we cuddled in my bed. The thought of losing you just makes no sense inside my head. You're the reason I believe that love is real. Ain't nobody make me feel the way you make me feel, darling. Tell me, is it real? Or was I lying to myself just to make you feel so real? Ain't nobody gonna love you like I love you. Ain't nobody gonna want you. Like I want you, ain't nobody gon' trust you. Like I trust you, ain't nobody gon', ain't nobody gon', ain't nobody gon' love you like I love you. Ain't nobody gon' trust you like I trust you. Ain't nobody gon' want you like I want you. Ain't nobody gon' want. I can't love nobody anymore. Never want now. I wanna just be all alone. Nobody love me like you. So you were talking about you know writing and also watching movies to get inspired. Or I mean, for us mortals, we just watching and binge watching <laughs> to, to pass time. <laughs> Would you have any advice for anybody who's maybe still having a rough time adjusting to this new normal? Yeah, I think like the, the most important thing is to understand that it's okay to not feel okay all the time, you know, and and just. When you are feeling down, what helped me a lot was just remembering to be grateful and like remembering, as bad as you have it, and I know it's not always the, the easiest thing to understand, but you still have it much better than someone else, you know. And so, sometimes just being grateful can help you be thankful and, and help you feel better about your situation, because no matter how bad you have it, like just being alive is, is the best gift of all, you know. And it's like a one in trillion chance, I think, to be born or whatever. And so, um, sometimes just being grateful to live. Uh, is is what helps. That also helps me, at least. I hope it can help someone else. Amazing. Now, coming to you, we have a lot of、um, young listeners who are maybe teenagers who are probably still in high school. What were you like as a teen? Um, interesting. I was uh, I was a pretty, I was a good student. I wasn't always going to class on time or going to class, but I was、uh, I was definitely one of the students that like got good good grades without um. Maybe studying the hardest, which was、okay. uh, which was always fun for me, but people didn't like me for that because they worked harder than me.、Um, I was pretty friendly, like I, I was I was pretty social. I went to three different high schools, so like it was kind of a weird thing for me because I never really had to settle in in one.、Um, but I kind of always been the type of guy who had my close circle of friends, and I I've had the same friends for like my whole life, pretty much 15 years, and so.、Um, I was like a nice guy. I was social, but I wasn't the like social butterfly. I wasn't like at the parties and stuff. I was just kind of laid back, chill guy. Took took everything day day by day. Right. Were you already into your music as a teen? So I was. 
Like I used to, when I was a kid, I think I used to like sing like covers of songs, like Bruno Mars songs to girls, like to try to win them over and stuff. That was my way of flirting. But <laughs> I, I got into making music in my last year of high school. And so um, I think I was in yeah, my senior year was, was when I first started making music. So people would see me like in the cafeteria at lunch, just like making songs, like singing and stuff. Like people would like play beats for me and I would rap for them. Um, so I think the school definitely knew like, okay, he, I wasn't big or anything and I had no like fan base um, until like years after, but the people knew that I was trying to do it. Um, and some supported me, some didn't, but some did. That's awesome. Would you have to freestyle to the cafeteria? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much how I started making music was just me freestyling in the cafeteria for my friends. And then that led to like freestyling alone and then freestyling at the studio and then writing. And then that, that's kind of how everything happened because I was pretty good at freestyling and people would have fun. They'd like, people would give me words and I'd use their words to, to, to like rap. And uh, it was always fun. Wow, that was, that must be so popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people liked it. I mean, it was a thing. It was definitely a thing. We had our own little circle of, uh, of people, but um, I'm sure other people found it annoying too because they're just eating lunch and we're just like making a whole, <laughs> a whole ruckus on the side. But we, didn't care. We, were just, we were just having fun, you know? That's awesome. And it takes a lot of guts, you know? Not yeah. everybody who thinks they have the talent would be able to do it so publicly. Exactly. I mean, I was pretty shy, but I think because I was like, it was my final year at the school, so I was like one of the older guys there. So I was like, I don't care about like, the look. The, like kids who just came to school like I don't really care about their opinion but if I was like a grade nine which is when we started high school here uh junior I guess I probably wouldn't have done that you know I'd, I'd be too scared I'd be too scared so, <laughs> um, I was using my my age so it was, uh, it was okay it wasn't that bad oh cool what if I told you that I love you would you tell me that you love me back what if I told you that I miss you would you tell me that you miss me back what if I told you that I need Tell me that you need me, yeah. If I tell you all my feelings, would you believe me? Yeah. What if I told you that I love, 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 love you? Yeah. What if I told you that I love, 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 love you? Yeah. What if I told you that I need you? Would you tell me that you need me too? What if I told you that I love, love, love? And that was Canadian singer Ali Gatti on Thursday's Common Room program. And that's it from Week on 3 for now. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend.